Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, thanks, Lawrence. Uh, my name is Dale. Uh, from the capital universe here in Glasgow, Scotland. Great to see a happy smiling face, Lawrence. Thanks, Wayne, for the invite. And, uh, uh, it's good to see, you know, here in Plymouth. I was down some years ago and I had a fantastic experience. So, uh, hopefully you can tolerate my Scottish accent. I'm not going to swear this evening. I'm going to be on my best behavior. Um, thanks to the previous speakers for telling me how they are today. It's great and wonderful to, Listen to real recovery. Um, my name's, I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is the 5th of April 1987. And I'm a member, a serving member of the Almost Sobriety Group Sunday afternoon here in Glasgow. And, um, it's just a, it's just a joy to come along and, uh, talk about my favorite subject, which is me, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, so, um, um, I'm just going to go for it. I might say things, share things. You might tune into, you might not tune in, you might switch off, you might go away, you might cuss, you might swear, and, and then complain to Wayne or Lawrence, but why did you get this guy on the deal? Because, you know, he was completely mad, you know. But that's one of the things that I recognize that, that this madness, this insanity of alcoholism got me before I even drank. Um, I seen what alcoholism did to my mother who died at 40. I seen how it impacted my dad at 42. And, I was an orphan kid, you know, and I was lost. I just couldn't quite get to understand it, and, you know, and I uh, became, you know, um, kind of, you know, withdrawn in life. And um, in order to deal with that sort of, you know, isolation, took up sport, which was boxing. And and, um, and I love boxing. I love amateur, and I became professional. And um, I thought this is what I was going to be as a 15-year-old kid. There's going to be the next John H. Spacey, the next Ken Buchanan, and I had, uh, you know, had grandiose ideas that one day someday I'll be somebody because then I was an nobody. I seen what alcoholism did to my mother. I seen, I seen I had a different dad every six months. I had, I seen how it affected my dad as well. So there was can, there was upset, there was violence, there was dysfunction, disorder, and there was a lot of trauma. So from the ages of zero, when I came out of the room to the ages of 15, no one told me that they loved me, liked me, wanted me. I just had to learn all that goofy, cranky stuff later on in sobriety and, you know, I'm trying to make my way in the world and I'm, I'm doing okay in, in sport, but I'm hopeless at school. I'm, 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 my mind's elsewhere because I had this conviction and this, this ambition that I was going to uh, make the grade big time. And then, lo and behold, would you believe it? I discovered booze when I was about 16 years of age and something seemed to happen to my brain set, my mindset and my ambitions. And now I'm five foot ten, and then I was, you know, skinny malinky. I was a flyweight bantamweight. I won a couple of wee titles, and and I, I walked into a pub in the bar one day, and and uh, and I took this this sherry, and I took this drink, and suddenly, whoa, they down my mouth and my throat, and I just felt like giganto. I just felt like Rambo the second, you know. I just uh felt this kind of Wow, this buzz, my brain seemed to kick in, everything seemed to go technical, and, and I thought, this is a, this is the part of the missing jigsaw. And, uh, and that began a journey for me of great adventure and great, <laughs> great insanity, because all the ambition to be someday and, 
in sport and rather I just over a period of six months, a year, just went, just went, absolutely, I put weight on and I started to be a bit kind of naughty. I started to get a wee bit cheeky. I developed a Jekyll and Hyde character. Uh, something seemed to happen to me. Uh, my sister became a legal guardian and uh, she was 21, I'm 16, 17. And uh, long story short, um, I became addicted to the excitement. I became addicted to that experience, that euphoric recall. I became caught up in the buzz, the excitement. I love pubs. I love casinos. I love the characters. I love the shady bars, the shady places. You know, I love to go to the East End of Glasgow when the Celtic and Rangers game was on. And depending on my mood, there'd be a Rangers supporter when I'm a Celtic supporter. And then I'd be a Celtic supporter when in fact, I'd be a Rangers supporter. I was a chameleon. Where I went, um, I went where the buzz was, the excitement was, and um, I just joined in in insanity. The fist fights, the you know, the one night stands, the whole, the whole excitement and drama of it all, and thinking this is all right, this is okay. But it wasn't all right, and it wasn't okay. I just sensed when I woke up the next day, checking my face, checking my knuckles, checking my body, checking my pockets, just making sure. Right, I've still got arms and legs and a face, you know, uh, and checking other things like money in my pocket to go and start again. And despite the trouble, despite the wrong footing, despite the money lenders, despite the sort of, you know, the controversy, the drama, um, I just knew something wasn't right within me. My sister used to say to me, you're mad. I said, yeah, you're damn right I am. And here I am, 18, 19, 20, thinking this is all right, getting in with the crowd, getting in with the tribe and causing mayhem within my own family and elsewhere, working in a steelworks by this time, and working in with these, these heavy, hard drinkers in the steelworks in Glasgow. And, um, you know, you try what you lack. And I just sort of lacked that, you know, sensibility. I just didn't quite get it. I had to prove myself as a man. I had to grow up very quickly fast. And I got myself into a lot of dangerous situations because I thought, well, that was tough. You know something, a few whiskeys, a few vodkas, um, a bit of the old uh, butt fast, you know, the white tornado, and uh, I'm rocking. And there's the blackouts, and there's the trouble, and it all just happened. And lo and behold, it caught up with me. And uh, I moved from place to place to eventually, uh, despite trouble, uh, my mother, who, uh, my mother's sister, who was a raging codependent, who was a raging fixer, uh, met up with me and said, look, we're concerned about you. We're hearing a lot of stories. Why do you come stay with me? And, uh, we'll look out for you. And, and that began a different journey for me, despite uh, my best efforts. I got disciplined at work. Uh, I mean, come on, I can give you a drunkalogue and a drinking story out in pressure, but I'm not here to tell you that I had to qualify for this fellowship. And uh, so in my first experiences um, with AA, 23 years of age, with a waistline to match, and um, and I came into fellowship and I told me to stay away for one drink one day at a time. I had a lot of ball, a lot of trouble. I was introduced to this guy, he said, look, um, come along here, we'll look after you, and take it a day at a time, go to adjust with the day card, do plenty of meetings. But my mind was elsewhere. My mind was looking out for, I was looking for the sort of, the get-out clause, you with me? I'm looking for, right, okay, I've been a wrong move here. Yeah, I owed some money and things weren't doing so good, I lost my job. Uh, right, okay, I'll tell you what I do, I'll become, I'll become a born-again Christian. So I became a born-again Christian at 24 years of age, thereabouts, on the Wednesday. And um, I was a drunk born-again Christian on Friday. I just couldn't understand the nature of alcoholism. I just couldn't understand the nature of insanity. In fact, I used to go to, 
I got a wee bit of literature and I got a 24 hour book on one occasion and I used to take this 24 hour book into the pubs and read it to people and say, by the way, what do you think? <laughs> well, I'm sipping my whiskey. And they're like, ah, I've had a good mate. Off you go, yeah, bam. And more. And, um, and that, that was a comfort. I just generally thought I'd lose my mind, lose my way, got into a few kind of scary situations. Uh, and, uh, and that's, and, and then I just thought, oh, you know, something, I need to do something here. I had a lucid interval. I had a lucid interval at 26 years of age. I came back to AA and, um, and, uh, once again, the same old story. I just thought, man, I can't go on like this. Homeless, helpless, hopeless. I've got this working vocabulary now, but I didn't have it then. And, uh, <clears throat> I just came to, I just went to a meeting of alcoholics and I was after phoning Samaritans because my best thinking brought me to the, the jumping off place at the Glasgow Argyle Street uh, subway station. I thought I can just fall into this train. I just, the, the fight within the guy who used to walk into pubs and clubs in certain places and thought the party can begin now, you know, um, and lo and behold, here I am thinking, I think I better just take this away now, just go, because I'm causing too much pain, too much shame. And here I'm, I phoned up Samaritans, they said, God, why don't you go to meet a VA? And I, I came back, and that was April the 5th, 1987, walked into this hall, uh, got a half cup of tea, and I met a guy called, called Coleman Joe, who showed me the compassion, who showed me the love, he showed me the, he gave me the dignity I'd lost, and he said, we'd like to go for a fish tea. And he took me for a fish tea. This big guy, six foot four, big leather jacket, really scars all over his face and broken nose, qualifier year. And he showed me a love and he showed me that tolerance. He says, you need never drink again, Del. You'll be okay. He gave me my bus fare. He says, the mean of alcohol is enormous tonight in your town. Go there and let me know how you got on. I'll see you in the road. And that began my journey. And I began to qualify for AA, the third edition, the only desire to stop drinking, uh, is a desire to stop drinking. And then um, uh, I began that kind of experience where, okay, uh, I did meet his joining group and I met somebody who seemed to have a clue, an idea how this works. And uh, at 26 years of age, I, I just got into it and I, I began to feel better about myself. I was you know, waking up and uh, I was working in the doors in Glasgow at the time, so I was a bit wary about that, but I did that just to earn a wee bit extra money. And um, and then that became a bit of a kind of mind issue with me. And I just thought, no, I just can't do this. And um, and eventually I, I met this guy, took me through the program recovery, and I got it. And, you know, from the doors to security guard, and then I worked with a company insurance, became a salesman insurance. And then I met Agnes, my wife, for today, 32 years, and she couldn't resist my company red eyes, high cheekbones, the bubbly personality. And, uh, we got, we got together and we met at night school and we fell in lust, as you do. And that's how alcoholics do it. We fall in lust, then we figure it out afterwards, you know, and then we fell in love, or kind of. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I met this lovely Irish girl who, you know, dropped dead and, and, uh, and that's when I began to realize I've got a problem here. I don't know how to emote. I don't know how to relate. I'm very withdrawn. After the bedroom, after, hello, how you doing? I'm kind of limited. I'm into Sky Sports. I'm into Beans and Toast. I'm not into big conversation. And I'm into feelings, though. I'm into feeling resentment. I'm into feeling fear. Who's that guy you are talking to last night? Who's that? Well, tell me about your story. And uh, jealousy, suspicion, paranoia, that kind of thing. You know, the kind of holy trinity. And um, and I had a crash and burn experience. We got married, we got kids, and 
different things. I'm racing on here because I arrested my laurels after a few years of sobriety. I arrested my laurels. I just kind of thought, I'm okay here. I'm working in banking. I've turned my life around. A wee bit of respectability, a wee bit of dignity. And then I, and I, I kind of got involved in the outside issues. You with me? I just kind of, things weren't going so good in the bedroom. Things weren't going so good in my job. I began to get a wee bit, uh, let me say, uh, resentful and pissed off at life and living. And, um, and I ended up kind of getting caught up in my own self again. You see, I'm addicted to me. I'm addicted to resentments, those bitches and bastards that screwed me over. I'm addicted to self-centered fear. I'm a control junkie extraordinaire, gold standard. I've got a double life. Do you know who I am? <laughs> you're that guy kind of hand you his drink. And you're an AA, mate. You've got to own up and show up. Oh, man, here we go. And, um, yeah, and I, I, I had a crash and burn. been did something I shouldn't have done and crossed the line in certain areas. And um, I had to go and seek help, and I found myself going to America. I meet some dudes over there uh, in Texas, and uh, they kind of, this was in the early millennium, and uh, they got my attention. I met some guys, Chris R. and Mark Myers and Mark Houston, all these kind of uh, kind of nice people. And uh, I, I met a guy called Cliff Bishop who kind of sat me down and says, are you, are you a real alcoholic? That's a cheek. Um, I said, I need to qualify you. And we went to the spirit of the book and I, I, I got that. I recognize now that I had to deal with this condition called alcoholism. I had to re- realize that I was suffering from this malady of self. Now, I know there might be 12-step theologians here. I know there might be guys who might have a different view, a different position. Please be offended if you are and talk to your sponsor because, you know, this is just my experience. I just know and knew that I had to change my position. I just knew that alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it thrives on resentment. It thrives on this idea that one day, someday, I can control and manage my resentments. I can control and manage my self-centered fears. I can control and manage my self-will, my self-reliance, and be that state character. And uh, and and I had to get really down to causes and conditions because I found that resentment is just a symptom. Self-centered fear is just a, a symptom. Uh, the real problem is my selfishness. It's all about me. My self-seeking is still what's in it for me. I know that selfish resentment, that self-centered fear, that self-seeking relationship you're not talking about. Uh, and, um, so I, 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 I had a conversation with Cliff and went through this bit of the book and I found out that I'm powerless. Powerless means that I cannot manage the most earned decision not to drink and more in emotional sobriety. I can't even handle that, you know, resentment that I was so uh, immune to. I mean, people can resent and, you know, say things, do things in a way that, with impunity that I couldn't. I mean, I'm, I, I did have a temper. I'm a recovering radiaholic in the sense that I just kind of kicked off uh, if somebody didn't go quick enough at the traffic lights. And uh, so I, I found out step one is a big deal. Step two is a step two proposition. I'm now willing to trust this God that I didn't quite believe in. Step two is that insanity of me. And step three was I said, okay, now I'm going to get better, not bitter. And I looked at pages 60 to 62, where I looked at the malady, the spiritual malady they talk about and writes about the book. That's where it says that, that affliction to me and what am I, what am I going to do with my little plans and designs when I was that emotional present for my wife, where I was that emotional present for my son, my daughter. Really, it was all about getting money, making money, and being the great I am. And then writing down my resentments, my 172 resentments I may add, because I 
pretty pissed off because I didn't get my own way. And I looked at all my fears, my neurosis, my paranoia, my suspicions, my jealousies. Um, and I looked at my sex conduct, you know, how to be lusted, what is be lusted after, no romantic intrigue, you know what I mean? You know, the, the kind of visual stuff, I look at that. And, um, you know, that kind of double life, you know, the, um, how I medicated my, myself, you know, away from the bedroom, how I, I love that kind of, you know, that kind of, well, I want a, well, I want a, you know, in the office. Um, and that was, that's been a challenge to me on an ongoing basis where I've had to sort of seek counsel and guidance elsewhere because I like, I guess, I don't know about you guys, I like that attention. I like that validation. I like that sort of, you know, that drugstore and the mind experience, that euphoria, you know, that somebody thinks I'm something. You know, I mean, look at me, I'm grey here, I'm overweight, I'm doing something. Come on. But in my mindset, I think I'm George Clooney. I think I'm, you know, I've got that kind of, you know, a, a creative imagination. But it's a creative imagination that will take me to drunkenness. Not only alcoholism, but that sexual, emotional and racial drunkenness, where it's all about that addiction to my own ease and comfort. So I had a, a good conversation with Cliff about extreme self-over and riot. I shared how I like to run the show, how I like to be jacky lad, how I like to get that validation affirmation. And I told the truth about my secrets. You know, the secrets, the sexual, emotional, criminal, the financial. And I opened up to somebody uh, because trust was a huge deal for me. A huge deal for me. If I didn't trust you, I didn't like you. If I didn't like you, then you didn't get a vote. And uh, and I lacked a sense of humour then because I was so inward. And um, and Cliff heard my story. And he says, welcome to the 100 Club. He qualified me. He says, you're one of us. Welcome to the 100 Club. And I looked at my first step, my 172 resentments, my, my fears and my double life. And there was a lot of them. There was a lot of them in my mind and literally in practically in art. And in step six and seven, you know, through the bit of alcohol, it's enormous. There's a treatment plan is telling me now you can get, get better. Because the first steps are diagnostic. The first step is about, I've got a problem here. Step two is about, say, well, we've found a solution here. Step three said, do you want to get better here? And step four says, well, let's look at what, are, what are the spiritual barriers that prevent you getting to know that God better? Cause you ain't it. You're not God. Although I thought I was in the lives of certain people and I wasn't. I lacked humility. I liked that candor. I was a kind of, you know, I wanted to impress people with my knowledge and my sense of humor. And, and I realized, no, oh, that's just all part of stage character. And step six and seven, I was just now wanting just to get a bit better. And, um, I said, right, okay, I'm just going to continue the rest of the program recovery. Again, in the discipline of doing AA in the spirit of the book. And, uh, I made amends and restitution. I had a list, the list of people that had affected, offended and upset, not only through um, I, I did this before, incidentally. I did that clean up the drunken, the drunken uh, wreckage of the past. But here I am, I had a crash and burn experience sober. Uh, and I'm not drinking, but I'm emotionally drunk. And I had to go back to certain people and say, by the way, you know, can I have a conversation with you? I need to get this right with you. I'll never get well. I'll never go over drinking until I get my story straight with you. And I got one or two people who weren't all that impressed. They told me where to go. I said, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. But there you go. And um, and that includes my wife, that includes my kids, that includes certain members of my family, certain people in AA and elsewhere, where I was a bit kind of, let me say, uh, you know, out, out of sorts. And step nine was about putting that amends and restitution into place and get my story straight, developing boundaries, developing that kind of discipline. And uh, step ten was 
all about, you know, me looking for those uh, defects. You know, the biggest one being my extreme self. Well, what's in it for me? My little plans and designs. And um, and through time and through the process, I got involved in a group, a group study group. Through time, I began to educate myself about spirituality. Through time, I began to take a real interest in the big group. I connected to men and women who understood how it works and why it works, and there was no hidden agendas. There's been some challenges in my experiences, trust me, there has. I've got those vulnerabilities and weaknesses, but you know something? Um, as, as to learn about just the types and not get involved with insanity, a lot of people insanity, and step 10 is, I'm watching for that resentment. Step 10 is about, I'm watching for that self-centered fear. And step 10 is saying to me, right, you don't need to run the show here and don't overreact. We avoid the palliation and argument. You know, if I'm offended, it's page six or seven. If I offend, which I'm quite capable of doing still, then it's a page eight or four. I'm sorry I upset you there. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm a bit out of sync here. Um, and step 11 is about this power I get in myself. Step 11 is about me getting my story straight all the time, everything, and being on standby. It's no longer about Dell. It's all about what can I do for this higher power, this God. That I still sometimes I don't understand. But what I do know, it works. And because I've woken up to that reality, I've woken up to the fact that the obsession for alcoholism is gone and the obsession for Derek is also gone too. But I've only got a reprieve. I've only got a dear subject to my spiritual condition. And what is that? Working with others, my primary purpose. Staying sober in the spirit of the daily disciplines of looking at myself, not you. I'm tempted to look at you because I like them, I blame and I shame. I like to think, well, I'm looking at this guy, this dude, and think, look at that. And I thought, don't even go there. Just don't go there. Because it's, you know, it's my mind, it's my focus. And, um, and step one is about prayer, asking for guidance and reflection, meditation. Just, wait, just waiting for that response. I'm not looking to become a spiritual giant. Not looking to become a, a recovery star. I'm not looking to become anything. Just try to remain, remain a bit humble, a bit more humoured, a bit more, um, you know, kind of honest about who I am, where I am, when I'm working with others. And step 12 is about having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, not long talks, not meetings, not self-help books such as the Four Agreements or The Power and Now. It's about, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Uh, we tried to carry this message to, to the still suffering alcoholic. We tried, I tried, I still try. I try to show up for the new man, new, new woman, and maybe not so much the women nowadays, but certainly the men. Um, who want to get well, who want to get well, who want to do a page 20, what do you have to do? I don't go out there seeking to try and convert, persuade, rescue, save, you know, and become the great messiah. If people want to get well, they'll get well, regardless of when I'm involved or not. But if they look for a closed mouth, understanding friend, somebody who's been there, who knows the nature of it, who knows how it works and why it works, then, you know, please count me in and that's what I do. Absolutely. That's my job. That's my job description. To keep me out of me because I said at the start of the call, I'm my favourite subject. I love, <laughs> I love me sometimes, you know, but it's a, it's a different form of love. It's self love. It's self care. It's having a sense of humour. It's enjoying life and enjoying being around Agnes, my wife, who's tolerated me, who knows my story. She knows about the crossing lines. She knows about my lad, about my rascal. Now she knows that I'm, I'm, I'm just a boring, boring, uh, fella now, and I love being boring. I love, um, just being at home with my, with my book and my writing and, uh, hanging with one or two good people and living a low, low kind of, uh, 
a low profile nowadays. I don't want to be the great I am. I don't want to be at the centre of attention. I just want to be there for the, the new man, the new woman who's struggling with this disease. Because alcoholics are my type, die alcoholism. And when I rest my laurels, which I'm capable of doing across my line sometimes, I'm very much aware of that I reach up and reach out. And I do my recovery imperfectly sometimes. And, uh, and I engage my wife, engage my kids in a way that uh, it's on their temper condition such so much so like I don't mind doing the dishes and not getting a pat in the back from it, you know. Uh, and, I, and I've got a boy who's six foot two, and dad, I don't, I'm not quite into you, you know. He's kind of, kind of, he's a funny, funny guy, but he's he's got a view and opinion. I don't always agree with it. Uh, but having said that, you know, we've never fallen out. My my son and I have never had a major fallout. I've never lifted my hands, my son. I've never lifted my hands to my kids when they were young. I've not lifted my hands. Uh, apart from one time self-defense in 28 years. I've not drank for a long time, but I've had many emotional problems. I've had many spiritual wrong terms. And I thank God for good guidance. I thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm in a relapse recovery program. Uh, alcoholism in the spirit of recovery, Hank Lawrence, is um, a toothless paper tiger. You know, And wherever you are in the journey, folks, wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you are in that mindset, you know, uh, there's a program recovery, there's a treatment plan, and it, it's not rocket science. 30 pages from 58 to 88 to connect the higher power in order to get the, to get the sort of, um, get the, the, the juices going and, and to then go out there and have a life. Uh, go out there and have fun, have a, you know, and, and just do what I need to do. And that's what I do. If it's not fun, it's no use, you know, and I enjoy laughter, enjoy feeling, but really at the end of the day, uh, I'm, uh, I'm very blessed, very fortunate. Uh, and I, I've heard a lot about gratitude tonight. Gratitude for me is, I'm not grateful. I'm only to sort of go out there and just tell my story to those who want it. Um, without the idea of trying to control, manage and fix people, I don't want to be the big boss man now or tell anybody what to do. If they want it, they can do it. Uh, I believe the higher power. I believe in the fact that people can get well with or without me. I'm just here. I'm just a simple messenger who, who just shows up as best he can. So thank you, Lawrence, for leading the meeting. Thank you, Wayne, for inviting me. It's an absolute joy to share with you tonight. I wish you all the very best. Uh, stay safe, and, um, and you're no longer alone. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, see the name of this group again. Rutgers Road to Recovery. Plymouth! Plymouth Road to Recovery. I'm I'm, I'm talking to you guys from Los Angeles. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you for all the shares. And it was really good to hear everybody with all these fun accents. And I still can't quite break it. <laughs> I don't know. There was something somebody said, and I, I can't even repeat it. It was just too funny. And I think I must have misunderstood it. I think he said something like, I get fucked in the face or something like that. I don't know. I can't understand the the the... The the accent. Anyway, I apologize for cussing. That'll be my last cuss word. Just confusing. I think he meant I'm just I screw myself over and over again. I get into trouble, which is what we do. So for me, I talk about alcoholism and I talk about it, it as a mind function. And there are two parts to step one, and it's that I'm powerless over alcohol, and then dash that my life is unmanageable. And you know, the invisible line is an invisible line. Some people cross over it early. Some people cross over it later. It's it's invisible. And most people don't really know the day or the time that they crossed over it. 
I do not believe that children are born an alcoholic. I believe that we may be predisposed and certainly it's environmental. And I do believe that when they say that it's generational, I think it's not generational through the bloodline it's, and through the genes. I think it's actually generational through uh, learned behavior, through um, the ecosystem that we are born into, to the way our parents handle frustration and anger and hostility, the way our mothers and our fathers continue to fight or spank or we are not heard or there's childhood trauma or we are moved round and around and around. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, when the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written, there wasn't as much information on childhood trauma as there is now. And childhood trauma and hardcore alcoholism and hardcore addiction go hand in hand. So there was this pre-state in my life before I began to drink where I was restless, irritable, and discontent. My mother is a war survivor from Nazi-occupied Germany. She starved. She was raped by soldiers. A lot of bad things happened to her. And her father beat her when she was a child all the time with a bamboo cane. He cracked pretty much every rib in her body and every vertebrae. So my mom comes out kicking and screaming, moves to America, marries my dad, and she is just ruling with an iron fist. Her daughters aren't pretty. Her daughters are not adored. There's no hugging. There's no kissing. There's no kindness. It's you will do this. And that's that. I've almost never seen my mother cry. My father, on the other hand, is very cerebral. He got his his bachelor's at Harvard, his master's at Columbia, and his PhD at Princeton. Written many books, you know, always teaching, always at the colleges, just sort of disconnected. And I remember way before I drank feeling ugly and feeling unloved and feeling like miss nobody. There was no self-esteem, none whatsoever. And I personally believe that pitiful and incomprehensible behavior happens to people with no self-esteem. There are very few alcoholics that I have ever met that said, I felt so amazing my whole childhood. My parents loved me and I was able to process my feelings and I felt so adored and my mother or my father put me to bed at night and I was allowed to talk about whatever hurt my feelings and my mother would say she was sorry and my father would say he was sorry and I was taught compassion and I was taught love. It's very rare. And if that was you and you crossed over the invisible line later, well, they asked me to speak for 25 minutes. So I'm going to share my experience, strength and hope. Anyway, that being said, a lot went down before I drank. So there's this broken child, okay? There's this broken child and she's kicking and screaming. There are two kinds of alcoholics. One that goes outward and fights and the other that stuffs and goes inward and suppresses all the feelings and pushes them down. I'm the outward one. And psychiatrically, the outward one is actually the easiest one to treat because this one is in touch with their feelings, even if it's fury and anger and hostility, even if it's that I want to shank you, even if it's that I want to take you down, even if it's that my feelings are hurt and I hate your guts. The one that can't even get in touch with a feeling and says, I don't really know what happened in my childhood. Sometimes it's so repressed and pushed down that it's actually inaccessible. And the steps are in a logical order form, but they're not a homework assignment. They're there to give us a psychic shift in our perception so that I can see the world differently so I can respond instead of react so that I can, it's better to love than to be loved. It's better to understand than to be understood. These steps are there to open my heart up 
And in order to open my heart up, I really have to see what's wrong with me. Um, we all probably go through the steps multiple times. And every time we uncover, discover, and discard. But even on a daily basis, not doing step homework, there's still the possibility that we're having aha moments and aha moments and aha moments, which is called spiritual awakenings. So somewhere around 12 or 13, somebody opened a beer and I drank it and alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I was at the party and I felt good and everybody looked good. And all of a sudden I have a crush on him over there and I can talk to her and I'm not intimidated and my eye contact gets better and I relax. And all those voices in my head about how ugly I am or how, you know, just how bad I feel about my life, they seem to temporarily vanish and I feel good. And I like partying and I like it a lot. And I can't wait for Friday night because it's going down. Where's the party? You know, where's the beer? Where's the keg? Where's the whatever? But as time goes on, it's not so fun anymore. Alcohol becomes my master, like they say in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I lose the freedom of choice. There's no more choices left. It's on and cracking like the guy that said he'd just wake up walking around (laughs) with a bottle of vodka in the morning. I get it. It's beer 30 every morning. That's what time it is. You want to know what time it is? It's always beer 30. Continuously all day long, it's beer 30. And I stay mildly inebriated over and over and over for days, weeks, months, and years. And, And thank you for the first speaker because he so eloquently said that alcohol is also a depressant. So I wake up every morning in hell thinking I need a psychiatrist, thinking I need to blow my brains out, thinking I have something really wrong with me when all I really do is have severe untreated alcoholism, severe across the board. So I go into my teens and my twenties and my thirties and everything's just a mess. You know, this whole thing, like my picker's broken. Let me tell you, that is such an understatement. That is such an under evaluation psychiatrically. I just gravitate towards anything that's dark. I gravitate, you know what, the worst guy in the room and I'm in love, you know, the crappiest friend that's going to borrow the money and never pay me back. She's my buddy. It's on and cracking. Me and you, let's go together. I mean, just fair-weathered friends, like it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Low lives. I was a low life, their low lives, because I couldn't feel anything but that. I was almost born into that, and then I poured liquor on top of that, and then I put myself in pitiful and incomprehensible, demoralizing situations, and everything just piled and piled and piled and piled and piled on top. And I would do geographicals, and I would meet other people, and I would think I need a straight guy, and a straight guy couldn't, you know, work it out with me. And so maybe I need a biker, or maybe I need a this guy, maybe I need a that guy, maybe I need a guy with restraining orders, maybe I need a guy from prison. I don't know what kind of guy I need. I need a boyfriend. You know what? I have the total inability to form a true partnership with another human being because I never even formed a true partnership with my own primary family. So what do I think I'm going to take out into the world if there's no tools? If there's no tools, there's no tools. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is here to show me. So putting the plug in the jug is a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of the whole entire journey that goes on forever. There is no graduating point. I don't work the steps. I live by the principles of the steps as a way of life. The spiritual principles, I apply them to my life 
So I look at step one and it says, I'm powerless over alcohol dash that my life is unmanageable. I have come to believe that my life is unmanageable by self with self. I don't need alcohol to go crazy on you. I don't need alcohol to blow a gasket in the middle of the street, to flip somebody off on the freeway, to want to cut somebody off in line, to feel like I have an entitlement and you don't. Don't you know who I think I am? I wasn't invited to your party. I hope your house burns down. The punishment never fits the crime. My mind speaks to me with great authority and something's going down and it's you all the time. I have no ability to stay centered. They're doing it to me. They're all doing it to me. But I have news for you. The calls are coming from inside the house. And I'm the self-manufacturer of my own misery. I am, like Bill Wilson says, the breeder of confusion, not harmony. I do not know how to meet calamity with serenity. I meet calamity with calamity. You can call me calamity, Jane, because everywhere I go in untreated alcoholism, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble and security's going to get called and somebody's going to walk, want to walk me to my car and it's going to get all crazy. I don't need liquor. I don't need liquor to enlighten, to, to, to light up my insanity. So I look at this step two process. I have to come to believe that a power can restore me. This is not a race. Again, this is a way of life. The only way that I can have a relationship with this power is by interacting with this power, is by seeking through prayer or meditation or both to improve my conscious contact with this power. Now, if the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that the main part of the illness centers in the alcoholic's mind, rather than her body, then alcoholism isn't in the liquid. It's in my mind. Which part of my mind? The subconscious mind is gigantic and the conscious mind is a pea brain. So down here in my heart, where all my hurts and harms, all my opinions of you, all my yesterdays, all the things that trigger me, all the things that I'm not even in touch with, they're in there. The issues in the tissues, it's in me, it's all over me, it's there inside of me everywhere, and I need to stuff a God down into where the disease is, into my heart mind, not into this mind. I cannot trust this mind. This is the mind of self, self self-manufacturing of my own misery. We must be rid of this sulfur, it kills us. Selfishness and self-centeredness, we think, is the root of our trouble, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate, sometimes seemingly without provocation. God, I offer myself to thee. Build with me. Do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. We must be rid of this selfishness or it kills us. The words all over the literature, but who really dissects it and picks it apart? Sometimes not putting this meeting or any meeting down. Sometimes the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is getting watered down or diluted. And we're not talking about a God consciousness and we're spending too much time talking about the drinking and not enough time about who I am today. Let me tell you, I can totally qualify in 30 seconds flat. I have 18 prostitution cases. I have 23 drug and alcohol related cases. I have six 
drunk driving cases. I have been in jail so many times it would make y'all's head spin. I have been a street prostitute with a bottle of vodka in the back of my pocket and a whole lot of other substance that don't belong here in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a vodka drinking, bottle hiding, maniac, maniac, maniac. And I found what I was looking for in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not on psych meds. I don't go to therapy. I have sponsors. I have people that I work with. I have people in my life I am completely transparent with. On a daily basis, there are five or six people I talk to when I get twisted up. I don't just run things by one person. I need a lot of help. A lot, a lot, a lot of help. I still need a lot of help. I got 16 years of sobriety and I can be a hot mess with one resentment. You just watch me go. So I look at step two and I have to come to believe that a power can restore me. When do I do that? Well, what I learned was if I'm not practicing a program of recovery, then I'm not in a program of recovery. Then I'm just a dry drunk. So when do I seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God? First thing in the morning, I wake up and I watch the thoughts that are surfing the waves of my brain. And I just go, "Uh uh-uh, not this, not today. No, thanks. I know I'm a loser. I'm going to be broke. This mosquito bite on my neck is going to turn into lymphoma. I'm too fat. I'm unlovable. I'm too ugly. I'm an ex-hooker. I'm a this, I'm a that. And I just beg with all my heart and I say, power, can you please protect me from my untreated alcoholism? My mind is trying to mug me. My mind is a lynch mob. My mind is trying to take me out of the game. The main part of the illness centers in my mind. In step eight in the 12 and 12, it says very deep, sometimes quite forgotten, damaging emotional conflicts persist below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they may have given our personality violent twists, which have discolored our patterns of our lives forever. I've got a lot of problems, a lot of problems, and I need a big, gigantic God. So Self is this big in the beginning and the God consciousness is this big, like a little Cracker Jack charm out of a gumball machine. I need to get a God consciousness that's this big and I need to shrink self down to here. How do I do that? It says constantly remind myself I'm no longer running the show. Okay. It's me and you, God, mostly you. I don't know what's going down. I don't know what people are thinking. I don't know what's happening with Monsanto and the pollution and the president and the world and politics and Black Lives Matter. I don't want to have big opinions where I blow my whole head off. God, can you please just be with me today? Allow me to be in a state of acceptance where I'm no longer running the show. Could you help me, God? Could you? Could you? Would you? Please, God, me and you, God, mostly you. And I, I allow God into my heart. And I start to let go absolutely one second at a time. I, I, I remind myself I'm no longer running the show. Please power, help me back down. You got to help me. I'm crazy. I'm a maniac. I have too many opinions. My mind goes a million miles an hour. Please power. Could you, would you, could you let me set aside everything I think I know so I can have a new experience right now with these people in the UK? Could you, could you allow me to transmit a message? 
like I never transmitted before. God, could you work through me and help me to help somebody out there that needed to hear something like this? Could you, would you please power, please be with me? And I pray with intention in my heart. Emmett Fox in Sermon on the Mount says, I pray in the secret place. I have a spiritual telephone booth and I call the power up with my heart mind and I ask and I plead for a new experience and God opens my heart. Alcoholics are not sociopaths and psychopaths. It's very rare that we are an absolute psychopath. Very rare that a psychopath is also an alcoholic. A psychopath is a very calculated type of thinking, very sinister and calculated. Alcoholics have broken hearts. We cry easily. We feel rejection so easily. We suffer. We suffer. Hurt people hurt people. We hurt each other and we hurt ourselves because we don't know how to function in this world. And God makes that possible. I look at step three and it says, I make a decision to turn my will and my thoughts over to the care of this God as I understood, reminding. It said understood. It didn't say understand. It's understood. It's understood it, that there's an infinite power that I can never wrap my mind around. I'll never figure out God. It's just understood that God is the manager for my life, in my life, this second, today, one second at a time. And I get out of that bed and I trust in the process and I turn my will and my thought life towards this power and not inward towards me and what I think I want and the impossible list for Santa Claus and how my needs should be met and how my warped instincts better get treated and how you better like me even if I can't stand you. And I ask God to put love in my heart and I ask God to place me in a position of neutrality and I ask God for compassion and I ask God to give me the willingness to help another alcoholic and pass the baton along. And sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, this begins to happen for me. You know, it really does. God begins to download in me because I'm making a decision every minute of every day to turn towards God. That doesn't mean that self doesn't get out of the basement and off her leash and go cuss somebody out or hate on somebody or do something crazy. But I try to reel her in as fast as I can before she gets out and gives the whole neighborhood rabies. Like I can pause when doubtful and agitated so much faster than ever before. I have an internal brake pedal and I can slam the brakes on and I can say, whoa, 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 turbo. We're not doing that today. No, 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 no. And I go to the power and I say, power, do you see what I just did or what I was about to do? Power, please protect me from my mind. Please help me stop this behavior. Please don't let me take this thing any further. And God does for me what self could never do. Self's no longer running the show. One second, one moment at a time. It creates humility in me. Humility is an activity like a duck that looks like he's just cruising along the water, but really his feet are paddling, 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 paddling. All day long, I'm talking to the power. Power, help me not to be triggered. Power, help me to be a better version of me. Power, help me just drive my car. Help me just brush my teeth. Help me just make my bed. Help me just be of service. And things slow down, and I'm not hyper anymore. And I don't feel insane anymore. And I start to notice 
the leaves on the trees are just a little greener and somebody that I never noticed before, she somehow looks beautiful and he somehow looks handsome. And I'll, all of a sudden, I'm so satisfied with what I have. I don't have an unsatisfied mind. I don't need to go on Amazon and eBay all night long looking for something to fix me. It's a God-sized hole, and I allow the power to come into my life. And as I allow the power to come into my life, I live in a world where drinking's not necessary, but also thinking's not necessary. You see, I live in a world where, um, why would I want to blow my life up? Like, honestly, even if there was a nuclear war, or I was diagnosed with cancer, or God forbid, God took my only daughter. Why would I want to pour liquor, glug, 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 all over that? Why would, how, how would that do anything to the problem? How could it possibly, possibly enhance what I'm already in? It's a full reliance on a power. It, it, I've got to constantly, constantly, constantly remind myself that I'm no longer running the show. You know, I just took a 16 year cake and I have never felt more love for the human race than I do now. I have never felt more love for the people in my life. I feel so kind and I want to hug people and I want to say I'm sorry and I want to be there for them. Self didn't do that. 16 years of hardcore grind at the principles embodied in these steps did that. I didn't do it. I'm a bitch. I'm a maniac. I'm a lunatic. I can be there for my daughter. I can be there for Stacy. I can be there for Boo. I can be there for so many people. There's bad things happening in my home group right now. Really bad things happening. One of my sponsees is in a psych ward. Another guy's been busted with child pornography. Another woman's having a total breakdown. My best friend drank. You know what? I got to keep it together. Please, God, don't let me go down the drain. Please, please. Please, God, don't let me throw away what I have. This program becomes so valuable to me, so valuable. I hold it so close that me and this program and God, we become one together. So close, I stay to this message. So, 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 so close. I do not want to stray from this path. There is no graduating point. It says, Practice the principles in all of my affairs. There's an affair every five minutes. I get in the elevator. I go to the grocery store. I got to put a mask on. There's COVID all over Southern California. People are getting sick right and left. Now it's mutated. It's attacking young children. My daughter's a big, big, big protester for Black Lives Matter. She has not missed one rally in Los Angeles. She has taken a stand for the minority. She's at the Justice Department, City Hall, marching down the street day and night with her mask and her gloves on. She has tested negative for COVID over and over and over again. It's not my life. It's not my calling. I have I try so hard to look at my own white privilege in, from every angle because I want to be an equal. I want to be 
loving. I want to be forgiving. I want to be on a fair playing field. My daughter teaches me so much every single day about that whole situation. I'm not trying to bring anything politically in here. I'm just like, wow, I'm wowed by my kid. She's a beautiful human being. How did God give me that? How did that happen to my life? How come my daughter's not a hooker walking down the street with no face mask? Like, Really, God's been so forgiving and so kind and so generous to me. I would never throw this away. This program is the most valuable thing I have. Me and you, God, mostly you. This is not a religion. It's a spiritual kit of tools laid at my feet. It's a spiritual plan of action. And I think I'm I'm almost out of time. And I know I can hang out for like maybe 10 or 12 more minutes. And I apologize that I somehow got the timing wrong. Really, if I confused somebody or if I got confused, you know what? I'm not perfect. I, I, I don't know why I, 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 I didn't realize I was supposed to be here for another half hour. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, Lawrence said there could be a small window of space in case somebody wanted to ask a question. And if I'm wrong there, I'm sorry again. But I think that I've done my 25 minutes. I'm not sure exactly. Is that right, Lawrence? Yeah, that's about 25 minutes, Astrid. Okay, yeah. and thank everybody. Thank you so much, all of you, all those beautiful faces I've never seen before. Alcoholics Anonymous is a miracle. It's a beautiful program. I don't know what we would ever do without it. Please don't throw your life away. Make your life important to you. This day, today, now, here, this minute, make your thought life important to you because you will get thirsty if you don't watch your mind. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.